Haynes is proud to present the WHS Healthy Shab Speaker Series. This week, Joby Weinstein from jcounseling.life shares Not Your Parents' Marijuana, Raising Our Kids in an Informed Way. I'm a, a licensed substance abuse counselor as well as a mental health counselor. I've been in the field about 10 years. My core specialty is addiction. I, I got my master's degree at a place called Hazelden, which is actually a treatment center up in Minnesota. And they have a grad program which is specific to addiction studies. So that's very much heavily weighted with that. Kids and even kids don't have to be 18. They can be as old as 40. That This dynamic plays out, you know, very similarly um, throughout until it's addressed. Um, I'm trying to think. I do a lot of work as well with, with mental health. Um, I think about 86% of kids that are diagnosed with a, a chemical dependency or a substance use disorder also have a co-occurring mental health disorder, so they often go hand in hand. A lot of times they're self-medicating and things like that. Um, so yeah, I was also, I'm in private, I've been in private practice for about a year. Prior to that in Austin, I was the director of a program called Teen and Family Services. That's where we did some work with Westlake. They would have us come in for any kid that had any kind of a substance-related uh, charge, so to speak, from school, um, they would have them go through parts of our program, which I really, really respect. They do a lot, a lot more than a lot of other schools in, re in regards to um, trying to inform y'all and trying to actually do something about a problem that's very much alive and exists, you know, pretty much in all schools across. So anyway, so with that said, um, like I said, I, I should, I have a lot of information here. So today we're going to talk about um, marijuana, a little bit about vaping. Um, I'm probably going to have to kind of rush through that. Genetics, adolescent development. Um, so my goal today is really to inform you guys on the different choices and things that you're having to make, that your kids are having to make, so that whenever you do make decisions, you, you, you have an awareness of what's going on um, out in the world and with what your kids are doing. So we'll go ahead and get started. So... Um, so for the most part, um, I'm going to jump into some of the biology of things. For the most part, whenever we're born, the organs in our body, our kidneys, our lungs, etc., they pretty much do the same thing from birth until death. You know, so our kidneys filter uh, water and toxins from the blood. The lungs ex exchange oxygen for CO2. The heart pumps the blood, etc. So there is one organ that's an exception to the rule that's changing rapidly, and particularly between the years of 12 and 24 years old. Can any of you guys guess which organ that is? The brain, yes. I wanted to do a little bit of audience interaction. So one of the things that's happening during adolescent brain development is something called synaptic refinement. So kids have this over ample amount of um, neural pathways in their brain. And these are responsible for creating like every kind of habit, every kind of thought that, you know, when you wake up in the morning to how you brush your teeth, these neuropathways are developing to kind of solidify all of that, your behaviors, your thoughts, et cetera. And so basically, you know, it, the brain becomes refined, so to speak. So this is an adolescent brain. This is kind of the finished product of an adult brain, I'd say at least over 27 or 28 years old. So a lot of pruning back is happening. So... There's literally tens of billions of synapses that are not necessary in their brain. There's times when they're losing as many as 30,000 synapses per second. So their brains are working really hard right now. There's a lot of important stuff being accomplished with this. This is sort of the most basic way to describe, you know, what's happening. And then, of course, um, in relation to what we're talking about. 
most addiction occurs in the limbic brain, which is kind of our automatic responses, emotions, hair trigger, things like that. The prefrontal cortex, which is the last part of the brain to develop, is responsible <laughs> for functioning, things like, you know, decision making, you know, playing the tape all the way through, logical thinking, things like that. This is the part of the brain that um, is not functioning right in any form of addiction, whether it be an adolescent or an adult. Again, like I said, the addiction itself is actually occurring in more of the, the limbic brain, the primordial brain. So what happens in addiction is basically the part of the brain that's responsible for inhibition up in the cortex, it, it gets overridden by the, by the primordial brain. So, for example, there's been, like, studies with, say, alcoholics and non-alcoholics where they've done, you know, um, hooked them up to brain scans. And while the non-alcoholic was consuming alcohol, at a certain point, there was a part of their brain that lit up that, was, that said, hey, enough is enough. You know, that's when you go, it's time to go to bed. I've had enough. What they found, and this is just one study of all kinds of different studies, um, is that when they hooked up the alcoholic to the, the brain scan, basically that part of the brain did not light up. So not only does it not function right, so to speak, in addicts and alcoholics, when it comes to adolescents, it's not fully developed. So they're already at a big disadvantage. So this is really what we're talking about here today. This talk is not so much about drugs and alcohol are so terrible. It's about what happens when you introduce them to a developing brain. We used to think that the developed at about 14 years old. Today we know that it's not until about, you hear anything between like 24 to 27. Um, and I think it just depends on the person. But so we were off by about 10 years. Um, so they're not. And this is why they continue, you know, that, that adolescence does kind of play through until they're older. But once again, the main point is that anytime in addiction, what happens is it's all gas and no brakes. And there's literally a part of their brain that is not capable the same way as an adult non-addict alcoholic is able to, to say no. They don't have that in their development. That's really, really important to understand. Um, dopamine, it's one of the main neurotransmitters. All kinds of addiction functions different ways depending on the drug and how it interacts in the brain. So it can be difficult to talk about the you know, the addiction as a disease and the biological basis of that because all of the drugs come in and they function a little bit differently. So we're going to talk today about dopamine. It's one of the major players in, in a lot of the drugs that are taken. So this is a synapse of a neuron, um, the best way. So here you see basically an excessive amount of dopamine. Here's the neuron. Methamphetamine fools the cell into dumping dopamine red into the synapse, causing a surge of exhilaration. So that's just kind of a basic idea of whenever a substance is taken, this happens inside and it, it overwhelms the process. Okay, so there's three things that will affect the amount of dopamine in the brain. One is how much dopamine is produced. Two is how many dopamine receptors there are on the other side receiving the information. These are the receptors. Um, and three, how many vacuums are sucking dopamine out of the synapse. So basically, here's an example of, so cocaine, it blocks the normal absorption of dopamine. As a result, it accumulates the synapse in the slide before this. It stimulates the receiver cell. So it sort of holds an excessive amount of dopamine inside of the synapse, and that's how it produces the impact on the brain. Amphetamine stimulates excess release of dopamine. So there's no block in this case. 
it's just an excessive amount overwhelming the process of reuptake and enzyme breakdown. So once again, this is just to kind of give you a little bit of an idea of um, how some of the different drugs function in the brain. This is kind of specific to stimulants. So our bodies are really definitely not designed to, um, to work with the kind of dopamine that's stimulated by the drugs that, you know, our kiddos are taking. Our bodies basically, they're sort of like we have a store of dopamine. Some people are and they have a little bit more than others, you'll notice that those people are happy and energetic a little bit more. But for the most line, most part, we have kind of a baseline. And we're designed to go throughout the day having little, I guess, hits of dopamine um, for different things. So you wake up in the morning and you see the sun, you know, rise and that's exciting. And you go to work and there's your favorite song is on the radio and you get another little hit. And then you... Listen to comedy or something else on the radio, and there's you start laughing. There's another little hit of dopamine. You go to lunch and you have a fabulous, you know, hot fudge sundae with syrup. There's another little hit, and so we're really designed to go. You you have a fabulous conversation with a friend that you hadn't connected with in years. That's how it's designed to work throughout the day. Okay. So various activities cause the brain to release more dopamine than usual. Enjoying food brings about a 50% boost, so we're at 100. 150. Video games, it'll bring you to about 175% of a boost in dopamine. Sex, 200%. Cocaine, 450%. Amphetamines, 1,000%. Methamphetamines, 1,300%. So this is far, far more dopamine than these brains are designed to be able to handle. Um, this is where, you know, and once again, on a developing brain. So their brains are trying to do all this work. Um, so what happens is when these massive spikes in dopamine, you know, occur, the brain basically says there's something wrong. So it down-regulates the amount of dopamine that it's producing. And that's how people become physically addicted to whatever. It's a part of physical addiction. It's not, it doesn't necessarily explain it completely. But so the body then becomes dependent on an external source for the dopamine because now it's producing about half as much as it was. This also explains why a lot of these kiddos will tell you, I'm feeling better or I can go to sleep and all this kind of stuff. But at a certain point, you're going to see anxiety raise and depression raise and all that because their systems are not designed to be able to do that. Another thing that's really just an opinion of mine is basically that, you know, the kind of swing back that the brain is trying to recover from, you know, the brain has a delicate balance. And so you do something like this to it. And my you know, theory on this, there's no medical evidence to prove it, but it's, if the brain's supposed to be doing all these important things like synaptic refinement and stuff, and you're introducing this level of dopamine into the brain, which it's not designed to handle, my guess is that it's probably spending more of the time restoring itself back to balance, restoring itself back to balance. And there's so only so much energy in the body for our body to do stuff. So once again, on the developing brain, and this would be on any brain, it, it's a problem, but their brains are developing, and so when they do this, I'm thinking that, you know, the brain at this point, instead of developing, is having to fight to, to maintain kind of almost like a survival mode. On a little bit of a lighter note, um, this generation is making some of the best decisions about all substances that we've seen in 40 years. That's the truth. They're definitely, they've learned a lot preventative efforts around smoking and all the stuff that we came in with, they've learned from that. Um, alcohol and, and whatnot, they've definitely, we've seen a decrease kind of across the board. Um, 
what was this, ages um, 12th, uh, 8th, 10th, and 12th graders um, in their use uh, cigarettes, illicit drugs, and alcohol. Generation, we eradicate the paper cigarette. Um, unfortunately, we do know what they're doing in place of that, but again, we're seeing a lot less smoking and, and things like that. So when you ask them what do they think about cigarettes, you know, they'll tell you. They cause diseases, they cause cancer, they're the leading cause of heart disease, heart attacks, stroke, recurrent, recurrent situs infections. The number one in the country is cigarettes, and this generation is likely going to change that. Um, they're completely aware of the problem saying no. So the good news is that, our, our, like I said, our efforts in that case have worked. There's one major problem, and the problem is that their perception of marijuana is very different. So what are some of the things that you guys have heard from your kids about why it's okay to, um, to, 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 to smoke pot? It's legal in some places. Yep. Parents do it. Can't overdose from it. Right. You can still drive. You can still drive. All the different, I mean, they've got a million. It's medicinal. Natural. Yep. It's not addictive. It's, me it's medicine. It's legal. It's better than alcohol. Um, it's natural, and it's never killed anyone, which that's not true anymore. I think there's two people in Colorado that died, so um, not that that's a good thing, but at least we're collecting some. The one positive thing about marijuana becoming legal be able to do the research so that we can see, in fact, the kind of impact that it has has on people. So now we're going to swing back around to the brain. Helps with sleep and anxiety. That's a big one that I hear from parents and stuff. Well, they say that they're anxious when they're doing this, so they have social anxiety in the, these situations, and so they tell me that it makes me feel a little bit calmer. I don't trust that. So Oh, I don't, hmm, I'm not, that's not. <laughs> no, no, I mean, clearly there's a portion of the medical profession that feels like it's okay to prescribe it. Yes. What are they doing and what, why is it different than others? What, what, what's, what's the mechanism that says in some cases there's a genuine... There's a couple of things, and I can't bring them to the top of my mind, but there's literally a couple of things where medicinal marijuana, and it has to do with cancer treatment, and, and, and I think pain specifically around certain kinds of, I think, cancer treatment. Nausea, and there's one other thing, and I can't bring it to the top of my head. There's a couple of things that they have seen that medicinal marijuana has proven to be highly effective, but there's so many other things. I'm not, I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. not looking for, I'm not looking for a blanket justification. Sure. I'm curious what the rationale was. I can get you. I have to find it again. There was a, I knew at one point, I haven't done this. It's been a little while since I've done this talk. Um, For, yeah, medicinal. The, yeah, doctors aren't saying that they're, they sh they're not, I don't think they're prescribing it for anxiety and all that kind of stuff. We're not there. They're really, they're using it for a couple of particular things that have been, it's, it's been proven. MDs, it? Hmm? It's, it's not MDs that they're prescribing. For? Okay, okay. I mean, I've done a lot of reading, and one guy finished his, he said, having a Budweiser 
Right. Right. I mean, it's a teeny, tiny, yeah. almost in medical community, this going down the trail. It is. I mean, so it's almost, it's more propaganda pro weed growth. Yes. In my yes. Opinion, my opinion as well. It's definitely that, yeah, you know. Um, and everybody wants to talk about it and they want to research it and they want to, you know, the CBD, all the different stuff. Um, so, yes. Um, I don't think that it's done any major phenomenal things in the in the medical world uh, that we couldn't find other ways to address pretty successfully. So I'm going to go back a little bit to the synaptic refinement we talked about. So there's three things happening in the adolescent brain during development. We talked about the first one is synaptic refinement, um, uh, which is established uh, by, uh, by pathfinding of axons, largely de genetic determined molecular programs and cell-to-cell -cell signaling events. That's not so much what we need. It's dependent on experience, sensory input, and interaction with the environment. And I pretty much said that initially, but that's the piece here that's, that's critical, is that their brain development is very much dependent on these in, their environmental experiences that they're having, that those pathways are formed based on what they're doing and what they're, what they're developing habits with. So if they're if, if the habits that they're developing are bad, then those are the pathways that are going to be strengthened. So, um, let's see, it occurs most profoundly during critical sensitive periods of development. Okay, so the next thing that happens, the first refinement, the second thing that happens is something called myelination. So this is where there's a myelin sheath that starts to develop to kind of insulate those pathways that are developing to, to make them stronger. So an electrically insulating layer wrapped around the axon, which is increases the speed of electric conduction. So this basically helps make, you know, make you smarter, more efficient, and better able to quickly manage life. The final thing that's happening is the brain is laying down receptors. The first receptor that gets laid down um, on the outer cortex of the brain is dopamine. The second receptor that gets laid down is something called anandamide. Anandamide is a naturally occurring neurocannabinoid neurotransmitter. This is the neurotransmitter that determines in the synaptic refinement what gets kept and what gets pruned. And it functions kind of like a very finely tuned surgeon's scalpel, and it's very calculated in how it works within the brain, deciding whatever to keep and whatever to get rid of. Um, problem with THC, the psychoactive component in marijuana, is that THC is actually a mirror image of anandamide. And when they smoke pot at this age, what will happen is the THC will come in. It's actually stronger the, than the anandamide. It will knock the anandamide off of the receptor, and it will bind itself to the anandamide receptor. And it fits, and it works. So, the difference is, like I said, the anandamide was kind of like a finely tuned surgeon scalpel. The THC is more like a sledgehammer. And truthfully, I, I believe this is where the, the edges of where we are with, with, with what we're understanding and learning. I, I've developed this maybe eight months ago. So there's probably a few things out. But at this point, we know this. I think it's more than enough information to, 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 you know, to realize that it's doing something significant. Um, so, 
once again, the THC, in case y'all, is the mirror image of the anandamide. It knocks it off and it binds itself to the anandamide receptor. And then the THC is what's making the decisions about what gets kept and what gets um, discarded as far as the neural pathways. Um, it can stay in the body for about a month, Some, maybe a little bit longer, but generally about a month. Um, you know, y'all may know this, but if you're trying to um, know what the kid's doing, that you can see the labs and get specific numbers. You need to, you want to see the THC going down. Um, if they're not using, the numbers will go down. If the numbers go up, then they've used. So just in case for those of y'all who aren't well-versed in how to catch them doing that. Um, so could you, could you elaborate on that? What labs um, do you send this person to lab? Yes. Um, I will get you. I'll, I, I'll get you I'll, I'll, a list of, of places that you can. Different people use different things. You can go to a drugstore and pick up a test that's sufficient. You can get, you know, extent, you know, you can go as far as, you know, like DNA hair testing, um, or you can stay on the lower end of things. Um, but yes, I'll, I'll get you that information. So the conclusion is that marijuana is very disruptive to the developing brain. It, it impacts attention, verbal learning, memory, processing speed, even when they are not high. So this is affecting the brain even outside of the times that they're using. Um, teen alcohol use wires the brain for addiction. 40% of kids who begin drinking at age four become alcoholics. Percent of those who begin drinking at age 21 become alcoholics. So for each year that they delay their use, their chances of becoming addicted drop about 8%. So the message to our kiddos is not so much, like I said, that everything's bad and they can't ever use drugs or things like that. It's that they need to delay their use. For every single year that they can wait, they're at more of an advantage of not becoming addicted. The message is that their job now is to protect their brain. So a lot of you may know this, but about 50% um, genetics account for about 50% of what goes on. So if you've got a kiddo in a family with a parent or a grandparent that's struggling with addiction, they're 50, up to 75% likely to become addicted than their counterpart who doesn't is not in the same situation. Very, very genetic. I rarely see people who don't have... Um, maybe a few in my career that didn't have any addiction in the family. So it, this is something that some parents, I think they have a tendency to not want to talk about, but it's important information and they need to understand. If in fact they're at risk, they need to know this. They need to understand this. So basically one of the good things about marijuana is that these are, you know, three precursors to addiction. We're not going to be looking at the history of childhood trauma, but basically there's only one of these that we can really control, which early exposure to substances. But the beautiful thing is that if in fact we can control that and prevent them from using until they get old enough, we can almost erase the genetic predisposition. Can so it's, if in fact they delay their use until, you know, 24, 25, 26, they can pretty much erase the, their genetic predisposition. So it's very likely that even if family members that are addicted, if they wait until they're older, they will be able to use drugs and alcohol normally. So um, 
while it's unfortunate that there's such a genetic predisposition, we do have the power to change things and to, to set them up for success if, you know, if we're productive enough um, with the way that we approach it. Um, that's a guarantee. You say normal use of drugs. I can't understand the normal use of alcohol, but a normal use of drugs would be somebody that can use drugs and then stop. They can smoke, I don't know, a few hits off of a joint and once every two months and just continue to go back. So addiction in, in many ways is defined by functionality. Um, and then also, of course, lack of control once they start using the substance. Um, so, and that's, we're going to talk a little bit more about what to look for with kids with, you know, but we're, um, today we're, we are specifically talking about addiction. So, um, and the fact that given that they're younger, they're so much more prone to become addicted because their brains are developing. Studies show that marijuana interferes with attention, motivation, memory, and learning. Students who use marijuana regularly tend to grades, they do enroll from high school or college. They have lower satisfaction with life. They're more likely to earn a lower income. And they are more likely to be unemployed. Most marijuana use begins in adolescence. 78% of the 2.4 million people who began using last year were aged 12 to 20. As the perception of harm decreases, marijuana use increases. So again, that's what we're here today to help change the perception. Every day, 3,287 teens use marijuana for the first time. In the 1960s, if you smoked a joint, there was about a 1 to 5% um, THC in that plant or in that joint, so to speak. In the 70s, it went up to about 50%. Today, it's anywhere between 15 and 25% THC. 25 is definitely on the high end. That's very potent, um, I guess, flower plant is what they call it. Um, a lot of what they're doing are concentrates. This, in my opinion, takes it to a whole nother level. We're seeing different side effects and different problems. There's kids that are going into psychosis and not coming out. If you talk to people that work in acute care facilities, they will absolutely always tell you that their admits for psychosis from kids smoking marijuana has increased dramatically. So, again, this is all pretty new. So we don't really at they're in a very unfortunate in-between place because we don't really have the full knowledge of the way that this is impacting them. So we can't really say, you know, in the guinea pig face, but we know enough to know that it's, it's, it's definitely doing more damage than the previous, you know, the less potent THC. Um, so basically, concentrates, ba concentrates are, they take the flower plant and they use um, butane alcohol or some other solvents to extract the THC. Um, and it, we'll talk about that in a second. So basically, it, it's 40 to actually about 90% THC. So 5% in the 60s to as much as 90% today. It's like a totally different drug. Okay, so dabbing. So you guys have probably heard of this. Dabbing is to press a piece of cannabis extract known as butane hash oil against the heated surface of an oil-rich pipe and inhale the smoke. These extracts up to 90% THC levels. It is the newest growing trend for cannabis connoisseurs and Colorado currently has the largest following to date. So basically, got the name dabbing because it only takes a little tiny dab to get very, very high. It's much more concentrated than, than the plant is. Dabs are so powerful, they can trigger hallucinations and psychosis. 
The safest way to get ma marijuana wax is to buy it. Uh, dispensary still there are many safety issues to, c to consider. Let's go down a little bit, see what we've got. Okay, so right here, I'm gonna just show you a little bit about um, the way that it's made. So basically, in a, in a, in a, on a small scale, basically they take glass pipe or tube and they blow either butane, uh, isopropyl alcohol, or CO2 through the tube. This would be the glass tube, and out of that end of the tube comes the concentrate, which is in the form of a wax, which is called butter and all crumbled sugar, all kinds of different things. Sometimes it goes through a second extraction process where it removes the fats, the lipids, and the waxes, and it comes out kind of a candy glass-like um, substance. They call that shatter, and there's other names for it as well. Um, there's really no significant difference in the potency, just preference of, you know, marijuana users. So the left is shatter, the right is wax. Um, both shatter and wax are butane hash oil concentrates that have roughly the same THC potency. They're both used in dabbing. They both provide a more powerful, long-lasting high. Um, wax is usually easier to handle, measure, and use because of its coconut oil consistency. So these are the types of substances that you're looking for. Um, so the other thing, too, is that the safest way to get marijuana wax is to buy it at a dispensary, but it's still like vaping. It's an unregulated industry. Um, so there's things that can happen and there's safety issues. For example, if butane is not filtered, it can compromise the purity of the marijuana and it can cause really harmful side effects. Also, another issue is that a lot of these kiddos are trying to make this stuff at home and it's really dangerous to do. Um, they've literally, people have blown up houses. You look it up on Google or whatnot, you can see some of the unfortunate happenings of people, younger people and older people, trying to make this stuff at home. Um, the things to look for are um, Pyrex dishes, butane, of course, um, coffee filters. Uh, if you find that kind of stuff all together, it's a red flag. It's definitely a red flag. So um, this is where... Hmm? Yeah. <laughs> it's a lab. Um, so this is where you guys want to be, you know, hypervigilant. Um, I definitely think that it's okay. These are your houses. Y'all pay for where they live, their schooling and things like that. And if you're concerned, I think it's totally okay to go in and look and see what, what might be there. They are not equipped right now to make decisions that are in their own best interest, and particularly if they're struggling with substance use. You want to know what's going on. You just do. Um, 13% of 8th graders, 23% um, of 10th graders, 27% of 12th graders reported, you know, having vaped maybe in the last year. Um, my question to you guys is what do y'all think about those numbers? This one is, this is from the National um, Institute on Drug Abuse. <coughs> I'm not, let's see. Yeah, if it's the NIH, then it should be nature. Okay. Yeah, um, I can give you. Uh, I can give you where this came from. Oh, this is high. It's low. Yeah, like I said, this was what research showed, but based on my experience and pretty much every audience, you know, that it's you know it's we're in agreement that they're doing a lot more vaping than that.
Um, Yes. Which I think is probably okay. So that wouldn't be just twenty seven percent of the population of kids. One of the kids is in a higher percentage of tried it. So perhaps it's twenty seven percent of the kids that continue to report to be in the more populated cases. I I can't see that, but I don't know if it is. It just says twelfth grade. The main point of this, like I said, I'm happy to give you guys more specifics of details of where it came from. The point is that a lot of kids are doing vaping. Another thing to remember is that they can vape marijuana out of their vape pens. And so that's another reason why you really need to know what's going on. And they're so um, conspicuous. They put them in, in backpacks, in, you know, in the sleeve of their jacket, anywhere. So the schools are really struggling to... Um, to try to maintain this and not have it, you know, uh, become more of an epidemic than it already is. Yeah, yeah, but you know, kids, there that doesn't apply to them, you know. You know, every so often it just, but again, that they're not. It's not the same. So um, that's why, you know, I have a lot of parents that will call me and they want to bring a kid to me, which is good. Um, but you guys need to know this. They're likely not going to turn around and go, oh, my goodness, this is a problem. I'm going to stop doing it. That's just not where they are right now. They're highly influenced by what their peers are doing, you know. So, um, and it's unfortunate that you guys do have to know. I mean, you've got, it's a whole other language to kind of learn how to speak. But in order to keep them as as protected as possible, you know, what y'all are doing today and showing up here is definitely the right thing to do. Um, well, I think it's important, and I'm sorry to keep speaking mm -mm. out, I've had some interactions with this. It's important for everybody to realize this is how people are smoking pot. Mm -hmm. They're not yes. rolling joints. Yes. This is it. If you see vaping, this is what's going on. And if it's vaping, then it means it's a concentrate. The 40%. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So why wouldn't they? It's so much easier. It's so much more convenient. Mm -hmm. It smells like cherries. It smells like, exactly. Um, so just to give you guys an example, these are some of the flavors. Butterscotch e-juice, cafe, cafe coffee e-juice, chocolate cookie crunch, cotton candy e-juice. Who do you think these guys are marketing to? It's not the 40-year-old truck driver. So they, you know, anytime I talk with kids and stuff, I try to make sure that they understand that they are the target of some pretty extensive marketing campaigns. They are directly going after our youth, you know? Um, you know, and one of the things that I'll say is that, you know, don't fall for it. Don't let the industry get you hooked on you. They're trying to make money. Um, it's costing some significant, you know, our, our youth, their health. It worked with the opioids. Say that again? It worked with the opioids. In the industry. In the industry. You got, you got a nation hooked on opioids. It Oh, God, yeah. Those numbers are still going up. Um, it's astounding. We've been on the opioid thing for at least a decade, and it still continues to rise, despite all of the, um, all the education and, and preventative efforts. And so, yeah, that's a whole other soapbox. Okay. Just so that y'all know, this was a study done on 70 American-made e-juices to, to see. So basically, once again, an unregulated industry, so nobody's to see if the labeling or if on the pack 
packaging is in fact what's true. The FDA and the government has stepped in. They have recognized, they've declared it like a national epidemic among our youth. And basically what they've said is that they are gonna swing around and deal with this. But they're trying to get their right now because it's such a comprehensive thing. Um, so just like I said, for example, um, 70, 70 American-made e-juices were uh, studied to find out they were all labeled as not having nicotine. The question was how many of them in fact had nicotine and what they found was that 90% of them had some form of nicotine. And these were American-made e-juices. A lot of the, the, these things are coming from like China and India. So I think likely the, the, the likelihood that packaging is honest is probably a little bit less. Um, so once again, just, you know, to be aware that whatever they're, you know, saying on the bottles and whatnot, it's not a regulated industry. So they can put whatever they want right now on there. Um, and this was just to kind of let you guys see. So um, one cartridge for a, like a Juul e-cig is about equivalent to about one pack of cigarettes, um, sometimes one to two packs of cigarettes. So, um, and like you can see, this kind of shows, this is, you know, the body of the Juul. Um, some e-cigarette critics are calling the Juul e-cigarette the Apple of vaping or the iPhone of vaping. With its relatively low entry price and sleek portable design, ease of use, nicotine head rush, it gener generates for users, Juuls are catching on with the younger people. So again, just so that you understand, this is equivalent to a pack of cigarettes. Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing is that, you know, um, and is it a little bit different than, the, than the, what you find in cigarettes? Yes. But the other thing is that we still don't know. They're still, they're finding lead and nickel and chromium and all kinds of differences in these juices still don't know and once again we have people dying because they take one hit from something that has the wrong stuff in it. So again what we don't know here is is a pretty big deal. Um, all right and so this was just again one to two packs of cigarettes 20 to 40 cigarettes equals one jewel pot. Is my child just experimenting with drugs or alcohol or is there a more serious problem? So this is one of the big things that parents bring their kiddos to me um, for is they don't know. One of the suggestions I have to make to you is that it's far better to be hypervigilant and to take a kid in for a, a, a substance use assessment than it is to not do it and find out on the tail end that there's a problem. You know, if you have any suspicions whatsoever, my suggestion is to take them in. Because I promise you, the longer that this stuff procrastinates, the harder that it is to deal with. I, like I said, I deal with families. I started with teenagers, and as I've gone into private practice, it's sort of graduated, and I'm finding that I end up doing, I have the same, I have some parents that I'm working with, with kids 40 and the parents are 80. It's the same thing. Same exact thing, you know, so catch it as as possible because it's a chronic progressive disease it only gets worse it does not get better and it cannot be cured it can only be arrested and managed and unfortunately it, this is the last thing that we want to have to think about and this is one of the things that I, I, I work with is the most difficult to work with it's very you know one thing you, you want to ask yourself about what your stuff is in this and is there stuff going on inside of you that's kind of blocking you from 
being able to be truthful with yourself. It's a serious question, like I said, that needs to be asked because generally when these types of things procrastinate, it is denial. Denial is part of addiction. And when you get who's entrenched in addiction, the family becomes codependent, they get hooked into it. And so if, when this is happening, it basically means that the, the system has already completely shifted to what's going on in the kid. So, so what tends to happen family systems is that, you know, you have a family system which is going to seek kind of homeostasis, so to speak, at any cost. And what that means is that a family balance and consistency, even if it's painful, balance and consistency. And so when one kid starts to, 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 to go down very, very, very slowly over a period of time, the whole entire system will follow through and everybody's got their roles of this one's the enabler and this one's the enforcer and brother and sister over here and they're angry because she's getting the attention or he's getting the attention or what you know what it is and this dance will go on for a long long time so again it's important to to try to be as objective as you can about what you're seeing and it's generally right about you know this age if there's going to be issues when they're younger that this starts to happen. So th this is why this is such important information and particularly for you guys as an audience. Um, always ask parents when they come, the first question is, is whether my kid's in trouble or not. Who are they hanging out with? If kids are mainly hanging out with people that are doing drugs, guess what? They're doing drugs. And if they're not doing it right now, it's just a matter of time. My opinion, based on what I've seen, I think it's smarter to come in with the authority that you do have whenever they're under 18 years old because you lose that after 18, and I promise you it makes the situation far more complicated. Um, again, it is y'all's job as their parents to recognize the things that they can't see and to make decisions where they can't do it themselves. So many times I have parents come in and it's like, but they don't want to come to the therapy, and it's like, I don't care, you know. It's now is when you have to exercise the power that you have, you know. And the beautiful thing about this age, the beautiful thing about the program that I worked in, is that they were young enough. And between you know, teen and family services and the high school, we ended up being able to do this wraparound care. And not a single kid that went in there wanted to be there. But after five minutes or five days, they were fine. And a lot of them today, what we're doing today is we're not assured that they're going to get sober at 17 years old, but I know based on what I've seen, we're raising the bottom significantly because a lot of the kids that I've worked with, I'm watching them now go through college and stuff, and they're either staying sober or they are bouncing in and out of treatment, um, which I know sounds scary, but it's actually a good thing. Um, getting sober is a process. Very often it's a, you know, one foot out, one foot in for a period of time, and if they're doing dance at 20, 21 years old, it means that they're likely going to be okay for the tail end. Most people at this point, they don't catch this until 30, 40. They've lost wives, you know, husbands, houses, jobs, children, etc. So again, um, just kind of painting a realistic picture of, of what we're trying to accomplish with a lot of this. And y'all, many of you guys are probably in front of even that place, which is why you have even more power right now. So their friendship circle, are they, um, are they hanging out with sober kids and are they doing sober activities? So what are your kids doing after school? What? You know, that's important. If they are just hanging out, it doesn't mean that they, it might not be healthy, but you want to know what. I always ask kids, so, okay, so who are you hanging out with? And I can't tell you how many times again, I have people, parents in my office. 
office and I'll ask them, you know, do they have sober friends? Oh, yeah, yeah, they have sober friends. Well, when's the last time they hung out with, you know, so-and-so? And when they stop and think about it, they'll go, it was like six months. That's, that's more than sufficient amount of time for a kid to fall into a hole. So today, are they hanging out with those people today? And what are they doing with those sober people? And if it's questionable, I strongly suggest that you become proactive about getting them involved in some form of activity where they can bond with other kids sober doing things sober together it's going to influence them. They're not going to respond to you talking to them about addiction. They're not going to respond to rational or logic or anything like that. They're most influenced by their peers. So if you want to help them, you want to get them in groups with other kids that are healthy because that's who's going to influence them and keep them on track in the long run. So I, again, I can tell you how many times I've made, you know, like consequences, so to speak, when, when kids have come in and they don't necessarily need treatment, we'll leave with a plan of you have to find an activity that you have to participate in from now until the end of the year, and it's a minimum of two to three days a week where you're interacting with healthy, sober kids doing some kind of activity. You know, if you have to force it, like I said, that's I, based on, it's, it's a very difficult thing to accomplish. They're, if you tell them to do it, they don't have the skill set right now to understand how to create a lifestyle shift like that because that's really what that is. Um, so get a condition and you reward them for it, you know. Um, make it a condition that they be proactive and, and, you know, like I said, have that be something that they can, that they can get rewarded and acknowledged for. Has the school performance dropped? That's a, another big one. Um, engagement in activities. Have they activities that they've enjoyed, hobbies, passions, dance, whatever, was it, you know, the old friends that they used to hang around that were a little, a big positive influence, why aren't they still around, and of course, it's an interpersonal problem, so another thing is that if in fact you've been doing some kind of a back and forth dance with your kid for a long time, there's probably an issue, this shouldn't be something, if you're constantly fighting with them about smoking pot, it's a problem, you should be able to, a kid does not have a problem when they're threatened with a consequence and particularly the loss of their freedom. As a teenager, they're individuating the most important thing to them is their freedom. So if you're threatening the loss of their freedom and they're making a choice to continue to do something that's self-destructive, that's a problem. That's an issue. So don't let yourself once again get sucked into the dance. If you're fighting with them about using drugs right now, you've laid down a consequence and they choose to do it anyway, I would likely bring them in for some kind of an assessment. A normal kid, and I've seen normal kids too, when you put something in front of them that threatens the loss of their freedom, they will clean it up. They'll clean it, they'll clean it up right away. I've had a good handful of kids in my office and they'll turn right around and boom, you don't have an issue again. That's what it should look like. They should be fearful of losing their freedom. Um, it is abnormal for them to be okay with being put in their room for days, weeks, months at a time. That's not a normal response. Yeah. Understand, accept that the kids communicate differently. Do not wait for your kids to walk up to you and say, mom or dad, I have a problem. They're not gonna do that. Read between the lines, that's not how they communicate. So recognize a cry for help. You take action on it. Trust your gut. I can't tell you again how many parents have come to me and they would always tell me, I knew something was going on, but I didn't want to listen to it. And if I would have done that, I know that this journey would not have looked as harsh as it did. Um, trying to lecture, convince, or use logic with teenagers does not work. Doesn't work. 
So they do speak a language, one that, that some parents are, are excellent at, others have a, a more difficult time with. Can y'all guess what it is? It's kind of a trick question. Okay. Hmm? Boundaries. That's how you get a kid to do what you need them to do. So many, you don't want to sit and talk at them, and that's what they're going to listen to. And it doesn't mean you have to be mean about it. It doesn't mean that you have to, all those types of things. You can stand in the doorway at 1230 when they've come home a half an hour past their curfew and lovingly say, can I please have your keys? You'll get them back in a week, and we love you, and have a nice night and go to sleep. Consequences does not mean that you have to turn into the bad person. And if you do, so be it. Don't let the rapport that you have with them right now because as teenagers as y'all know they shift it's if you need to be the bad guy then you need to be the bad guy right now they'll get over it and they'll thank you for it on the tail end but it is also it's likely that if you start implementing consequences they're going to get upset about it you know and you may lose some of the way that the relationship is right now but i promise you it'll come back around in a better way and it's not worth what can happen if you try to stay their friend you're y'all parents right now you can be the friend in five or ten years you know um, reflect validate empathize so you can't go to ACL with your friend and the parents that let them smoke pot because we said no that's what you're saying you're upset about I'm really sorry that you feel that way validate how they feel try to think of a time when you have felt controlled like how many times have you not been able to do something because you needed to do something for your kids how frustrating is that empathize with that feeling but you're not validating the behavior validating emotion I'm so sorry this must be so hard for you I get what it's like to not be able to do stuff that you really want to do empathize and the next thing is because what they want is my no let me go to whatever we can't do that but how can I help you can dad and I take you to a movie or to dinner at your favorite place or to wherever it is that they like to go can we help you how can we help you fill this time up you know and they're probably gonna balk at it but it's the best, it's the way that, you know, you need to communicate. Um, kids do not respond so much to the words that come out of our mouths, but rather the energy behind them. So you can do as you want to try to figure out the right, right words, but if there's anger behind there, that's what they're going to respond to. Anger sets parents up for struggles with communication. Our unresolved emotions get projected onto the children, which exacerbates an already tense situation. So what also happens is the minute that you get angry, you become a buffer between that kid and them becoming accountable. Because as soon as you get angry, you become the target. So if you get angry, then they can go, mom or dad, this or that, and then it prevents them, it blocks them from that being one step closer to having to own up to whatever their behavior is. So that's what your anger blocks. How do we work on anger? We deepen our awareness of our emotions and appropriately communicate with our children. Stop, breathe, go within. Um, you can read further on this, but I... I I firmly believe that parenting is definitely, it's, if you, you want to look at it from a broader perspective. These kids are not in your lives for no reason at all. They are calling you to grow as much as they're being called to grow right now. And so you need to look at your own stuff. You need to look at your emotions, your anger, whatever has not been dealt with, because whatever you haven't healed and dealt with is going to come out sideways on them. That's why the most important thing that you can do for your kids is look at yourself. Um, okay. Example, does not work. You have no respect for anyone in this lied and manipulated and will walk all over whoever you have to in order to get what you want. You don't want to use you. The minute you start using you, the defenses go up. So as much eye as you can, it works. I'm exhausted. I want so desperately 
to have a relationship with you right now. I feel hopeless and defeated. Um, ah, okay. Um, you find your temper is challenged on a regular basis. Take a deeper look. Anger exacerbates an already tense situation. Um, choose to meet this challenge using it as an opportunity to work through them. The alternative is to stay stuck in ineffective patterns. Important stuff. Ask yourself how your parents dealt with anger. Look at your tendencies around that. When I was young, how did the adults in my family express their anger? There's likely a lot of similarities. We don't think about this type of stuff. We just sort of unconsciously go into this. No one in, in previous generations or this generation knows how to do anger effectively. We just don't. You know, we're trying to learn now, but we don't. How do I usually express my anger? So how do you do it? Are you passive aggressive or are you aggressive? Does it come out sideways? What circumstances provoke my anger? No is make a list of it so that when it surfaces, you have a little bit, just a tiny bit more power to shift in, in, in the situation. Because everybody's going to tell you you need to do all these great things with your kid, but when it comes down to it, the anger stuff and, and you know, not having it dictate the situation, it's really, it takes work. Um, Okay, I guess I'll skip through. Consistency is super important. This was a really fun thing. I better, I don't want to keep y'all, so we'll pass that. Um, this is an example of a home rules contract. Um, I'm a big believer. Keep rules simple. Don't do a big, extensive thing. Five or six majors, no call, no disrespect, physical, verbal of anyone in the house, whatever, have to be in at 11 on whatever night. Four Five majors, you know, have them sign it. Um, another thing, you guys have the opportunity. You want to develop a bond with them that is not the cat and mouse dynamic of constantly chasing them to either give them information or get information from them. I can't tell you the amount of value in taking them out somewhere and not asking anything at all about whatever needs to be discussed. Go and be with them. The energy with which we engage in the will have as much impact on the outcome as the activity itself. Just be with them. That's how you develop the foundation in the relationship. And it's from that foundation, if you're strong enough, it will be able to bear the arguments and wait. But if you don't establish this foundation with them, you don't have anything to go off when things do get rough. Okay, so the main thing is matching with love. If any of you guys, Al-Anon is a wonderful place to go. It teaches you how to control what you have the power to control and to let go over the things that you don't have any power over. Um, control is a highly misunderstood and loaded word. What does letting go mean when it comes to parenting? Um, mm -mm. Yeah, but we're not responsible for controlling our children. Contrary to popular belief, controlling does not work. Discipline and nurturing do if combined. Seek balance, seek wisdom, seek, seek not to have control, but to own our power. That, I think that's Melanie Beattie. Um, Yes, okay. So that is, yes, that was it. That was the last slide. I have a little conclusion here. Today's marijuana is much more potent than it even was 10 years ago um, as adults. And if as adults we don't integrate and adapt to this new information, we will be unintentionally putting our kids in harm's way in ways that make it very challenging to reverse. As adults, we need to educate ourselves on communication styles that will be most effective when talking to kids and will also give them the best chance at succeeding in today's very difficult culture. And that's it.
Thank you for joining us. If you're interested in the archived video recording of this session and any corresponding handouts or resources, please visit the WHS Healthy Shaps website at healthyshaps.weebly.com.